This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we are at the end of our series on the Minor Prophets. And beloved that we named this Majoring in the Minors, because again, the Minor Prophets can seem like something that's easily uh, easily overlooked, right? We oftentimes can look at these prophets and go, man, these small books, there can't be much in there because they, they're not voluminous books. We don't have a lot written in there, must not be as important. And so we really have been highlighting all the ways that while these prophets may not have tons to say, the messages say a lot. The message of God's heart, where God's heart is on issues, they say a lot. So the only reason why they're called minor prophets is because they just don't have as many words, but the words themselves carry a lot of weight. And there's no better example than this book of Malachi, in which we find ourselves, because not only are we ending our series on the minor prophets, Malachi ends the entire Old Testament. And the message of Malachi is so important that uh, the, the audience's lack of adhering to that message led to 400 years of silence. People didn't hear from God for 400 years until, uh, the, until John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus comes on the scene 400 years later. And so that tells us there's something in this book, this minor prophet, there's something in this book in which we need to pay very close attention. Because while God is not silent to his people as a whole any longer, it may mean that if there are things individually in our own lives that we are missing, God may indeed be silent to us. So as we uh, look, uh, begin this, this movement through Malachi, it's a small book, four chapters, but there's some really, really important things there. Uh, I want us to pay attention to a word that's become a part of our vernacular over the last three, two or three years. And it's the word gaslighting. You'll see why we're bringing it up, but Think about this. Over the last few years, we have heard this word used, we've used this word, and we've learned a lot about kind of how it's how it often is used against other folks, right? The general idea that uh, someone can, can make you feel like that certain things that you're experiencing is true or certain things that you know to be true. There are things they can say or do to make you question that, to make you question yourself. Did I really experience that? Did that thing really happen to me? And a person can come and say, did that really happen? Are you sure that that's what happened? Eh, I'm not sure that that's the way that went down. You know, maybe you need to rethink the way you're processing this. And so this idea of gaslighting, we, we, you might think that just a word that just came up, somebody made it up recently, but it's not. Uh, it's rooted in a movie that came out in 1944 called Gaslight. It's a movie that starred Ingrid Bergman. I remember this simply because my mom used to always love watching what I called dead people movies. She would only watch movies as long as everybody in the movie were dead. Everything was black and white. And so this was one of those movies. And uh, in this movie, there is a, a, a woman, Ingrid Bergman. She's a young woman who had witnessed or had, had seen her, uh, her aunt die in uh, this home, I believe in France. And so, uh, in Italy, I'm sorry. And so in this home, she had seen, she had witnessed this murder of her aunt and she was extremely afraid to ever go back there. Then uh, when, uh, she, when, when she finds out later that the house has been left to her, she goes to the home to go in and move in. And so, yeah, it wasn't Italy, it was London, but she goes to this home in London and she moves in. She remembers the things that happened. She's kind of afraid moving in, but she takes occupancy of the home. She's inherited it. And over time, uh, she eventually ends up meeting this young man who uh, accompanies her. And uh, he is, he's, he's very much kind of acting as her protector. And during that time, while she's living in the home, she starts to question her sanity. This young man starts telling her that she's becoming forgetful. She's getting a little erratic. Uh, she's, she's acting in irregular ways. So he tells her, listen, because you're so kind of out of sorts, you should just stay in the house. And he starts telling everybody else, hey, she's not well. She's got some issues. Uh, try to keep your distance. And he almost keeps her confined into the house. And over the, over the evenings, she starts to hear like knocking on the walls. S very suspicious things <clears throat> begin to happen. She starts seeing 
uh, the gas, because a lot of times the lanterns or the lamps were gas powered. So she starts seeing the gas light start to go dim and dimmer and dimmer. And what he tells her is, everything you think you're seeing, you're just imagining. Look, the, the light's perfectly bright. Why did you think it had dimmed? There's no knocking in the walls. I've been here too. I haven't heard anything. And so she really is starting to question her own sanity. And over time, you start to find out that uh, what had happened is this man had been the one lowering the gas at times to make her think that she was crazy. He was the one that was knocking on the walls to make her think that she was crazy. And so the term gaslighting comes from that movie. Because over time, what ends up happening is the victim in in this case starts to become uncertain that they can even perceive reality correctly. And what do they do? They become dependent on the gaslighter, more attached than ever before. Now, sometimes gaslighting isn't as expressed, right? It's not as blatant. It's not like uh, sometimes, you know, you could say somebody might gaslight if, if you know that somebody did a thing to you and they're just like, no, I didn't. Why would you ever think that? Many times gaslighting isn't just an expressly stated refusal. Sometimes they are shrouded in questions. Did I really do that? Can you prove that I did that? Well, what about this thing over here that you didn't seem to ever pay attention to before? Why are you bringing this up now? In many ways, when we see that, and we may have experienced that, and we may have felt that before, and we know what it is to be on the receiving end of that, do we realize not only that we often can do that to other people, but we very likely attempt to do that with God? That's what we find happening, in my opinion, in the book of Malachi. We start to see people who do what we are prone to do. What are we prone to do? We are prone to uh, have certain view of the truth in our life, right? Certain ex- valid experiences will happen. And then we derive truth from those experiences. And then we live that out as gospel truth in our life. And so what happens is when God's truth begins to challenge this derived truth that we have from our experiences, what wins out? Either we conform this derived truth to what we claim to be absolute truth from God's truth, or we challenge God and go, no, 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 my truth says this. That's kind of the danger where we are now as a culture when we will often say, well, my truth is this. Now, please hear me. This isn't saying that your lived experience or my lived experiences are illegitimate. This isn't saying that our emotional reactions to lived experiences are illegitimate. But what this is saying is we have to be very careful not to exalt derived truths from our experiences to the same level of the absolute uh, absolute truth of God's heart and his word and his mind. It's really important that we don't do that because what happens is the moment those challenges happen, the moment that God's truth collides with our subjective truth, there's a big issue. There's a big thing that starts to pop up. We either have to choose, what do I cling to, to, to my unwavering kind of truth, subjective truth, or do I conform, or do I find a way to compromise what I thought I derived from that, or what I believed as a result of that? Now, what we often will do, though, is we will challenge God with our subjective truths. God says this, no, because what I've experienced, God, is X, Y, and Z. So you've got to find a way to make your truth fit with my truth. As opposed to, I need to look at my truth as something that is in subjection to yours. This is where the Judeans or the Jews or the Israelites at the time, this is where they found themselves here in Malachi. By way of reminder, where are we at here in Malachi? Well, we've talked about this before in Haggai and Zechariah. You had the people of Israel that had been completely overtaken by the Persians, and the, I mean by the Babylonians, and then eventually Cyrus and the Persians come and overtake the Babylonians, and Cyrus decrees that all of the Jews could be free. There was a lot of issues with that, because uh, remember, we had the kingdoms that had been separated. You had Israel in the northern kingdom, and Judea, or Judah in the, in the southern kingdom, and uh, eventually all of the northern kingdom just got wiped out, and so all you really had left was Judah, And the reason why Judah eventually became known as Judea, because that was the Romanized version of the name of Judea, the reason why they were called Jews is because they were descendants of 
the Judeans or the Ju- the Judahites. And so you basically had just all that was left over before you had this massive swath of land. Now you had like this small swath of land, roughly about 600 to 620 square feet. And that was now Israel. So when the people come back, they finally are freed and they're able to come back to their homeland, a much smaller homeland. And when they get there, it's like this tiny little postage stamp version of where they had lived before. And when they get there, as we've talked about, lots of things need to happen. Homes need to be rebuilt. The land needs to be tilled and begin to be fertilized again. The temple needs to be rebuilt, as we talked about in Haggai. And so now, after all of this happens, things get rebuilt. And they start rebuilding their community. And they rebuild the temple. And roughly about 100 years after that is where we find Malachi. So it's been about a century since they've been able to return. It's been about a century that they have been able to be restored and begin to hopefully trust God. And yet they haven't. They've taken their experiences, derived truths from those experiences, and then challenged God when he calls them out for not upholding his truth. And as a result, there are roughly six disputations or arguments that they make against God. I would argue that they they basically are offering their subjective truths to God to either to either gaslight him by questioning or by challenging his claims directly. So it's not like, hey, you've done this to me. How have I done that? In other words, let me put all the burden of proof and all the burden of production on you to prove that I've done the things you say that I've done. Because then if you don't have all the facts straight, that'll help me show you how, how, un, uh, how inaccurate you are in your assessment of what you claim I've done. We do that to each other. They try to do it to God. So let's look at some of these uh, uh, disputations that the, the Jews had here. And hopefully, you know, we say this all the time. We don't want to look back at people and go, those people were so wrong. How dare they? I would never. We're supposed to see ourselves here because this is our nature. God's word tells us a lot about who he is, also tells us a lot about who we are. And so let's look here. Uh, the first dispute you see in uh, chapter one, I'm just going to read the first few uses here, uh, verses here. Uh, Malachi. And by the way, Malachi, it's a word that simply means God's messenger. Many folks argue that we don't even know uh, who, what the real name of whoever this prophet really was, because it's just a very generic word that just means messenger from God, God's messenger. Many times in ancient uh, Hebrew, ancient Jew, Jew, uh, Jewish history, they would just refer to it as God's messenger. We don't really know who it was. He may have wanted to re- remain anonymous. Maybe there was a real person named Malachi. We have no other record of anyone named Malachi as any kind of a prophet in, uh, in, in Jewish history. But here we are, Malachi, a pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country. The people of the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this. You yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. What is God doing here? Well, if you remember... um, we know this story uh, well, right? We know that at one point going all the way back in Genesis, you remember the issues that were happening between Jacob and Esau. And there was this, uh, ultimately, we see this, this enmity between the two brothers, the, de- the, the deceit that occurred, the anger that Esau had. And we see that God, for his own purposes, chose Jacob to be the seed through which his promised seed would come, the seed through which the nations will be blessed. And so when the folks immediately, it's interesting because when you get comfortable with a person, you can get so comfortable and so familiar that you start forgetting what's actually true. It can happen so easily. You get so familiar in a relationship and you start forgetting the things that are most true about your relationship. You start forgetting the things that are most true about that person to whom you've pledged fidelity. You get so comfortable, which is why it's important to always be reminded. So God is reminding them. They're going... He's telling them, I've loved you. And they're basically going, how? How have you loved us? In other words, have you really loved us? Now, they're probably still feeling a lot of things, right? Because they're seeing this piece of land that they're living on way smaller than before. 
They're likely feeling, uh, feeling like, you know, this is nice that God brought us back here. But did he really fully restore us? Because our land is way smaller. Our influence is smaller. We still don't have the power and the influence that we thought we would have or should have. So really, how have you really loved us? There really is this feeling of like, we question whether or not you love us. Now, it's interesting that uh, when you think through how gaslighting works, uh, it's interesting, Lyric had brought this up before, the only way that gaslighting works is if the person being gaslighted doesn't have the full story. I thought that was just so profound. It, it, the only way that you can be gaslighted is if you don't have the full story. The person who has the full story, they know the things that they can omit in order to get you to believe the story they're feeding you. And so the only person really that can never be gaslighted is God. Why would they think, as you see the rest of these uh, disputes, why would they think that they could challenge God and question him uh, and as, if to, as, if they, as if God would ever forget the whole story? So God does what he does out of love. He reminds them of the whole story. You guys have the nerve to ask how I've loved you? You don't remember what's been written? I loved Jacob and hated Esau. And that word hate isn't necessarily this emotional, you're going to see it again. It's not this word that we typically would think of as like, I hate, I have a burning rage against you. That's not the word in the, in the Hebrew here. It's a word that, that really defines positioning. I am for here in this position, and I am against or away from this position. So he's basically saying, I oriented my ways and my heart and my direction to Jacob and was not for Esau, how can you say that I have not loved you when you look back through history at all the ways I've shown love to your forefathers and all the blessings that have come through because of my love for your forefathers? How can you say that? So what God does with us. We take our subjective truths, question him or challenge him, and he reminds us with a real accurate total history. And so when, when God starts to show them, he not only says, you guys have not loved me. And they go, well, how have we not, how, how have we not loved you? Or how have you loved us, I should say? And he says, well, here's the history. Here's how I've loved you. Then he says in verse six, a son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised me? That's the second uh, uh dispute now. Yet you ask, how have you, how have we despised your name? Now, this is interesting because, again, we're going to get back to this familiarity. You hear the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? This is a great example of that. They got so comfortable that they felt like they could just approach God any old way. Listen, now we are, and again, in our deconstructing of some, uh, some maybe some ugly, toxic uh, ways that, that uh, 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 the institutional church sometimes have, has functioned and we're trying to separate toxic things that are more a function of tradition and not a function of God's word or not a function of God's heart. We need to do that work. But be very careful that in your deconstructing that the redeeming of your soul ceases. Be careful that doesn't happen. Be careful that your deconstruction uh, does not stop your redemption does not stop the function of your sanctification, that you don't start to have a lower view of God because of how familiar you are with him. Because that is what it means to despise him. While you think you're getting more familiar, you're actually getting further away and showing hatred and contempt for God. And then when he challenges you, you will be like, how can you say that? I've been calling him my homeboy all the time. I always give him, I give him props when I pray for my dinner. I, I, I make sure that I shout him out if I get a major award. I make sure that I let other people know that, hey, this new house that I got, I couldn't have got it without God. So, so how can you say that I don't love him? You know what that means? That means I've been defining how I should be showing love and devotion to God. So, so why would you challenge me on, on my truth, how I have chosen to show uh, praise to God? to show gratitude for God, to show love for God. They thought they were loving him. And God is going, you still despise me. How? Here's what he says. They said, how have we defiled you? The Lord says, the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a, a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. 
Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. What is God saying here? Back during the Old Testament and under the old law, under the old covenant, the way that they showed uh, their, their praise and worship, the way they worshiped God with their lives, as well as uh, pointing to God's uh, coming redemption of them, there was this sense in which they were having to always uh, uh, point to that and lean on God for their redemption, lean on God for their atonement. And so there were requirements. God said, in order for you, as a sign of the atoning work I'm doing for you and your descendants, bring these spotless, blemishless animals for sacrifice. It wasn't just because God is this bloodthirsty God. There was a real sense in which the people were supposed to show their true devotion to God. The, the fact that they were leaning on God to ultimately atone them. And so in, in had they continued to see God as a holy God and not just a close homeboy of a God, then they, they would likely have said, I feel so much fear to bring a, an unworthy sacrifice. And it had really even less to do with just the quality of the sacrifice. The quality of the sacrifice was reflective of the quality of their hearts. And that's no different than us. The quality of our sacrifice to God, the quality, the ways in which we praise and worship God are reflective of the real quality of our hearts. Do we have hearts that revere God? That's what that fear word means. Because if we revere God, then we would feel complete fear. We would be so respectful. I would never dare bring an animal that I know God says, don't bring this to me. So it's not just, you could say, well, what if people didn't have anything else? That's a different situation. These are not these people. These are folks that were so overly comfortable with God. Their truth had dictated to them, God will be okay with this. No different than this. God is loving. He'll get it. He's all right. It, it, God's not going to be that crazy. That, he, he's, he's different now. We've got a different relationship with him. I hear that a lot. Listen, your relationship with God is different than my relationship with God. That's true. Completely true. However, the areas where God has objectively said, this is what I require of you, that's not a subjective, your relationship versus my relationship. That is, every person who follows God, this part should be true. And here, that wasn't the case. So God is going, nice try. You tried it. You thought you could challenge me and ask me, but you forgot I'm God. I know everything. So you want to know how you've despised me? You've willingly overlooked the responsibilities you have to bring sacrifices uh, in trusting and, and putting your faith in my atoning of you. You've overlooked that. You skipped over it. And so you see that despite. And basically, you've been bringing subpar sacrifices. And not only you, but your priests participate in the same. If the priests were doing their job, when people brought those subpar sacrifices, they would have said, no, 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 not here. You, that, this is God. That's why God said, try bringing something like that to your king. It's weird because we will show more respect to earthly leaders than we will to God. We will show, we will actually show a reverence for earthly leaders or family members then we would even to God. And that shows with how we live our lives. What does sacrificial worship look like in our lives now? Or do we just give God what we have time to give God for? Or what the, you know, whatever we have left over, we can make sure we give. I'm even just talking about material things, just in our lives, our time, our space in our heart, maybe changing the, the truths that we've derived so that they actually are in line with where God is. That's a part of worship. So anytime you have your truth, anytime I have my truth and it's unwavering, even in, in light of what God has said or what God requires, I'm, I'm not worshiping him well. I'm bringing him a subpar sacrifice. Now we move to chapter two, and in chapter two, there's a few other things that come up. In uh, verses 13 through 16, uh, God says, this is another thing you do. You're covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates 
and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel. He covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Now, this takes some really, we need to take a quick moment just to dive into this a bit because this, and there'll be another passage later that we often can kind of read really quickly, maybe derive a truth out of here that might not be fully accurate. But what we see, what, what we know what was, uh, that was happening during that time is that you had many of these uh, of, of the Jews of, of that day uh, very close with many as, as, that people would call pagan groups of folks, people who were not following God at all, followed a lot of false deities, practiced uh, a lot of uh, pra- practices that were not honoring to God, that were sinful, uh, that were tempting other people to jump into those forms of practice. And so one of the things that was happening was many of the men who uh, had wives, who had Jewish wives, and, and this it was, wasn't even as much of a, of a racial ethnic thing as it was a, a spiritual thing. Because God is like, I want my people to be followers of me, and I want their descendants to be followers of me. So if you choose to be with people who are not interested in following me, who actually follow practices that are against me, that are antagonistic against me, then the, the descendants that I'm expecting to see very likely will not be those that are for me. And so they, what was happening is a lot of these men, once they had been, again, comfortable and they had been in, back in Jerusalem for 100 years or so, they started wanting to get rid of the wives that they were with to be with some of these pagan wives instead. And so they were divorcing for flippant or non-reasons altogether. They were just like, hey, I think I'm tired of this one. I'm really interested in what this one will be like. I think I'm going to marry her now. I'm going to divorce her and that's it. But Jesus makes reference to this again when he talks about uh, uh, divorcing because of the hardness of people's hearts. Because many times that's what was happening. First of all, men were the only ones that could even choose to divorce or marry. So they had all the power. And so it was easy because marriage, not only was it a romantic thing, not as much really as you, as you would hope even in the Old Testament, but more than being romantic, it was much more about security and protection. So you had these women who were protected because they were married in that culture at that time because there was no protection for women. And then these men are going, yeah, I'm, I'm tired of all of that. I don't, I don't know that I like her anymore. Or even if I do, I really like that one over there better. So writing of divorcement, I'm done. And then these women were left by themselves. So you see God even saying the injustice that's at play the hatred that you have towards your wives. Again, that word hatred, again, is a term that says you are oriented against them and not for them. Your positioning, your heart position is not in line with mine. So it's, he's like, it's funny because he's really doing, he could be saying this to us. Y'all are sitting here crying, God, why? God, how long? Sometimes people can gaslight you with, with, with overwhelming emotions and copious amounts of tears. I'm so sad. God, why are you doing this? Same thing in a relationship. Why are you doing this? How could you you do this to me? I'm so sad. You know that I love you. You know that I'm there for you. You know that, you know that, you know that. And then they have to be reminded, how, how how can you even fix your words to say that? Do you see all these areas where you have betrayed me and the excuses that you've made for that betrayal? And yet now you turn on the waterworks and I'm supposed to be moved and, and, and have selective amnesia in the moment and forget and overlook all the things that have occurred that you've done nothing to fix or even acknowledge. And in this case, God is saying the way that you have treated fellow image bearers, the way that you, you have treated these women that you committed to, that you took vows to, and your reasoning for wanting to divorce them are flippant or non-existent. Guess what? That's a part of your worship too. All of life is worship. Worship doesn't just happen on Sunday or back in those days on Saturday. Worship is a function of your entire life. The decisions that we make, the reasons for those decisions, how we engage, how we communicate, how we love, what happens when we withhold those types of love. And that's what was happening here. So they tried. They tried to challenge again. Well, how can you have an issue with us? How can you say that we don't love you? How can you say, why why don't you accept our sacrifices? Okay, we're, we're sad. We're crying on the altar. You realize that many times people can be crying out even to God on a Sunday and fail to love their neighbors on a Monday. That's kind of been the history of the church, especially in America. So this is not a, this shouldn't be a shock. When we see this, we should see us. Because in many ways, it's not just the individual marriages that were the issue. 
The individual marriages in Judah were, were, were in many ways uh, re- uh, replica- uh, replicating or even uh, revealing their marital unfaithfulness to God, period. They were supposed to be in true relationship with God, and they completely betrayed. Then you come to verse 17, and he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? Again, more gaslighting kind of language. You say that we've wearied you, but how have we? Even though God knows, y'all should know this. It's not like a genuine inquiry where they genuinely don't know what they did. Now, sometimes people may have taken their own truths where they have selectively ignored things and then may have honest beliefs about themselves because they've been able to ignore it. So maybe in the moment, they are not intending to deceive. But really all they've done is they've deceived themselves first, believe the deception, and then try to push that deception onto you. And in either case, God calls them out. And so in, in, this, in this fourth dispute, they're like, how have we wearied him? How have we worn God out? God is exhausted with us? How? You're tired of the stuff that we've done? How are you tired? What have we done? God says, when you say everyone who does what is evil is, is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? You see what he's saying there? In many ways, that is kind of what we can be prone to do as well. Those folks there were going, you know, I don't even know, like, if it's even worth trying to follow God, because there's a bunch of people that are evil that seem to be doing fine. I don't know about you, but I felt that. Hey, there are folks that are genuinely trying to follow God, genuinely trying to love their neighbor, genuinely trying to love God well. Genuinely being open to correction and growing and being sanctified and being remade into the image of Christ. uh, Lovingly and hopefully waiting for his return to to make all things new. There are people living that life, albeit imperfectly, but working and trying. And their lives still look like a mess. And then there are people that can't even spell God, let alone care about following him. And their lives seem to be going copacetically. Why? What's the point? Now, that's that's a legit feeling. It's a legit experience. But what truth do we derive from that? And then have we made that subjective truth an absolute one in our hearts? One that we now live by. One that we use as as a syllabus to evaluate the other areas of our lives. Because ultimately that's what they're doing. And God is calling them out and saying, you you guys are wondering how you, have you worn me out? You've worn me out because in spite of everything that I've done, in spite of all the things that I've shown you about my nature, in spite of all the ways that I've shown you that, yeah, you're not going to understand all the things that I do and why I do them. You're not going to understand why grace and mercy seems to fall on some and doesn't seem to uh, manifest itself the same way in others. You're not going to understand that. But hopefully my history with you over the last, in this case, almost 4,000 years, hopefully my history with you shows that I'm good and that I'm just and that I'm for you and that I have a plan to restore you. That truth, and I know this is hard, that truth should really hover over us. That truth should be the truth that anchors us when we are in the tumultuous waves of uncertainty. That truth is what we hold to when our eyes tell us maybe God isn't good. That truth is what we should hold to when we say maybe God isn't just. That truth is what we hold to when we say maybe God isn't gracious. Because eventually, when we stop believing those things about God, we will start to be even more harsh on ourselves. Because if God isn't gracious, then at some point I'm expecting him not to be gracious with me. And then I might get to a point to go, Well, why even try? And that is kind of where they are. Why even try? And so you see where God God goes with this, because ultimately at at the the end of there, they've already gone to where's the God of justice, right? That's more of the end of chapter two. Where's the God of justice? And and, and he tells, and how have we wearied you? And then we get to to the middle of uh, chapter three, where God gets to the fifth dispute. And in chapter three, verse seven, he says, Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? God says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Well, how do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, 
the whole nation are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. This is another one that we've got to do some work on, right? Because uh, the two that often get, like I said, the two that often get quoted from this book are the, the, the divorce piece that often comes up and, and we'll almost use that. Let me just add this one thing I forgot to bring up before. We'll often use that divorce passage in many ways to really shame women who may be in abusive situations, horrific situations and go, hey, wait, God hates divorce. And we, and we divorce that from the context there. That's not what this is at all. Many churches have used that in order to force women to stay in very unhealthy, damaging, ungodly marriages. And that is wrong. And if that has happened to you, God is for you. God cares for you. God wants to restore you. Please don't let this, because in many ways, Scripture can be used to gaslight as well. And in the same way, in a similar way, we see this happen with this passage. This is a passage, the Will a Man Rob God passage. Um, church that I was raised in, great experiences, love a lot of folks. But one thing that used to always be quoted when it was time for offering, tithes and offering, was this passage, Will a Man Rob God? It, it, in some ways, it becomes kind of the church shakedown passage. Because if you really want people to start giving, guilt them into, you might be cursed if you don't give, right? Um, now, there is a sense of reverence that needs to be attached to giving, and we need to understand that, but, but we need to also understand what's happening here. The tithe, or the tenth, the word tithe is just a word for a tenth. And what we know is, based on the Old Testament law, what was required was that annually, people would bring a tenth of everything they had produced on their farms or whatever they had produced in their vineyards. They had to bring a tenth of whatever they had in terms of animals. So they'd have to, they would have to bring a tenth there. Also, people, we, what we often don't bring up is that people also would have to bring a tenth in order to fund all of the festivals, the Jewish festivals and holidays that would occur. And then every third year, people would have to give another tenth in order to bring money together for people and for the poor, for those that were needy. So depending on what year it was, you were either giving 20% of what you had or 30% of what you had. So it's often when people go, is the tithe still for today? You often have to respond with, which one? Because many times we try to take something in the Old Testament and not understanding the context there and then try to make it normative. And then that's a great way to like guilt people. And hey, if you want to make money fast, guilt people with it and shake them down. Now, Many times people have asked this, and I'll answer it right here. Does God require the tithe for New Testament Christians? Well, ultimately, if we're going to talk about which tithe, listen, everybody would love getting 30% and everybody giving 30% and all of that. But do we see a New Testament command there? No, we don't. What we do see, though, is a command for generous giving, regular giving, sacrificial giving. So what percentage is that? Who knows? It could be more than 10 for some people, depending on the situation, it might be less than 10. But the heart of the matter is what matters here to God. You see, because these folks back then, it was known the only way the temple could be rebuilt is if people were giving regularly. The only way that the priests could be cared for is for people to be giving regularly. The only way for the poor to be cared for is for people to be giving regularly. And so the tithe was a codified way of doing that. In the New Testament, what Jesus does, Jesus does what he always does. It has been written X, Y, Z, but I say to you X, Y, Z. It has been written, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. It has been written, don't murder. But I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. It has been written, tithe. But I say to you, give generously. And so what, what ultimately is happening is God is saying, you guys say that you love me, but you rob me. And they're like, wait, 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 how do we rob you? That's really a good point to remember, too, that everything we have is God's already. And so we should have a heart that says, I want to generously bless not just people directly, but also the people of God, also the temple, and today the church. There's a lot of you know, controversy about how to do that. We can talk about that. But, but ultimately, 
There's no question. We see this in First Timothy when he talks about elders and pastors who give uh, their time primarily to the breaking of the word and teaching and the preaching of the word, that they're worthy of a double portion. All we know is that ultimately for those for whom it was possible, it was, it was a requirement that the church gather monies. And Paul said on the first day of every, uh, uh, of every week for people to gather money so that they could support people in the churches as well as the needy that are there. So God says that if we don't do this well, this isn't about shaking down and guilting people. It's about, Lord, help me be so overwhelmed by your generosity. Help me to be not to be so uh, 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 familiar and comfortable with you that I overlook aspects of your nature so that I'm okay not emulating those aspects myself. If I'm comfortable or if I'm familiar in a right way with your generosity, then I can't help but to be generous. If I'm familiar in the right way with your grace, then I can't help but to be gracious. If I'm familiar in the right way with your holiness, then I can't help but to fight for holiness. Here, these are the disputes. These folks were uh, going through the motions and they were crying on Sunday or on Saturday, but then not worshiping God with their hearts, with their minds, with their money, any other day of the week. And so God says, they're like, what can we do? How do we turn back to you? Notice he doesn't just say, turn your hearts. You have to turn your hearts. But he also says, turn your actions. Repent, return to me. How? By offering the tithe again. In other words, by giving again. The temple is in disrepair because people aren't bringing in the tithe. Then we come to the final dispute. And the final dispute uh, in chapter uh, 3, verses 13 through 17. They land where we often can land. So they've heard all this stuff. Okay, God, you've confronted my truth with yours. This is the challenge that we have. What do you do when, the, when your truth collides with the uncompromising reality of God's truth? How do you respond? Here's how they respond. Your words against me are too harsh. God is quoting their words back to them. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. God is actually saying their words about him are too harsh. God is saying, the things that you say about me are too harsh. And yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? So that's what he's doing. Your words against me are too harsh. The stuff that you've said about me are too harsh. And they're like, what have we, what have we said? And this is what they say that I was getting at. Here's what they say that we say. This whole, my truth colliding with your truth, after I've heard your truth, it's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So listen to this. In many ways, what they do, this kind of ties back to something earlier. Where is the God of justice? Here they're like, not only are we, are we struggling, my truth says you're not as just as you say you are. I don't know if it's even worth following you. It's not worth following you because I don't seem to, I don't stand to gain the reward that I thought I was worth or, or that I expected. In other words, God, I really, truly don't love you for who you are. I really only love you for what you can give me. And I ain't been getting a lot of those good things anymore. So I don't think it's worth following you. I don't think it's worth serving you. I don't think it's worth changing my subjective truth to then uh, obey and to put into motion your objective truth. It's just not worth it because I don't stand to gain. See, if you only follow God in order to get blessings, then you have recreated a God that doesn't truly exist because all, or the way you define blessings are far too small. Your view of blessings are far too small because the ultimate blessing is this idea that I get to be remade so that my heart changes so that I now begin to look the way God looks. I get to love the way God loves. I walk the way God walks imperfectly, but ever changing. And in that I'm able to then be a blessing to the people around me. But if I only think that following God, this is why it's dangerous when a lot of times the gospel is taught is like, you, you follow God and all these wonderful things are coming. You know, the people who can't rock with that, the people who have been following God and are still going through really, really hard times right those are the ones that it's, it's so interesting that when the church presents a gospel that way, you start gaslighting all the suffering around you. 
Because the moment you start thinking that when people are following God, everything gets better, then the people for whom life has not gotten better, they are the ones that are sitting there going, well, either A, God must not love me, or other neighbors who are doing well will go, you know, you just need to get closer to God and eventually it'll change. God, there's got to be something going on in your life that, that's making this not happen. This is, this is the way where they were. This is oftentimes where we are. And so how does God end? This last message that he's going to give for 400 years, they won't hear another thing. And he's heard their disputes. And he's called them out and he's clapped back at their disputes. He's heard their truths and he's challenged them with the truth. And then he says this to them. Again, at the time, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. So there still was a remnant of people who were trying to fear God. A lot of times, so one of the things I love when people go, the church has been horrible. And in our deconstructing our faith, we'll be like, the church has been horrible. But don't overlook, don't sleep on the fact that there's always been a remnant of people who have still been trying to follow God. A lot of times they have the minority voice, but they've been trying to follow God. And these folks are trying to follow God. And they hear this and they go, the Lord took notice on them and he listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had a high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession. On the day I am preparing, I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. We get to four, won't go into that, but when he gets to four, he basically tells them something to look forward to. These are kind of the parting words. All through chapter three is really the end of uh, Malachi. Chapter four is really the end of all the Old Testament. And so you have two epilogues that in many ways form a prologue for the coming of Jesus, being that way being made straight before him by John the Baptist. And so, but, but when you get to like the end, the way this ends, this is God showing that really uh, the, the remnant people, there's always been a remnant people. And God says, and God is getting ready to be quiet for 400 years, which tells you that the people, most of the people did not respond with repentance. They responded how we are often want to respond. We are often inclined to be like, all right, you said what you said. Thanks for sharing. I'm going to keep holding on to my truth. And likely for about 400 years, everybody else just continued to follow their truth. You know what God did? He was silent. But he promised that hope and help was still on the way for that faithful remnant. He said, eventually, that day of the Lord, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a time of rejoicing. In these last three verses, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. These verses talk about sending uh, uh, Elijah, which really was this kind of moniker for uh, that people started to maybe wonder about with John the Baptist, but it really was referring to John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was going to come and make the way straight. The Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets, right, had, had been telling the truth about our human condition, and they still do. They tell the truth about our selfishness and our sin, but they also announce God's promises that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people, and bring his healing justice. This is the truth. This is not just your truth or my truth. This is the truth. So when my truth in any way counteracts God's truth, what am I supposed to do? It needs to be in subjection to his. This is the hope, the future hope that Malachi, the last book, of the Old Testament, the last message God gives after 4,000 years of engaging with his people. This is what he tells. This is what the Torah tells. This is what the Old Testament and all the prophets highlight. So what is truth for you? How do you handle truth? Do you index your truth more highly than God's? Because if you're doing that, you are likely recreating God in your own image. And in many ways, you think you're close to him and God says you're actually despising me. You think that you're loving him and God says you're actually hating me. You think that you're following him and God says you're actually running away from me and you feel comfortable doing it. And listen, these folks felt comfortable doing it for four centuries. How long will you feel comfortable doing it? Jesus came so that we don't have to be slaves to our own truths anymore. 
He came so that we can actually give up. We can let go of the reins. I don't have to find a way to to put together uh, truth for myself. I don't have to find a way to maybe recapitulate whatever truths I had before that may have been unhealthy and and then take those and merge them with new unhealthy truths based on my experiences. Your experience matters. But be careful the truths that you derive from your experiences. Judge them in light of God's truth. Don't judge God's truth in light of your truth. This is what Jesus rescues us from. And it's not easy. And we don't perfect, we don't perfectly do it. But he is empowering us. Over as we return to him, he empowers us to choose his truth and not only ourselves. Let's pray. Father, you are you are good. You've given this final message in the Old Testament. And as we end our series, God, I pray that you have shown us, that you continue to show us more about who we are, more about who you are, and more about how Jesus bridges that gap. God, we know that uh, we are prone to creating our own truths. They might be right. They might be wrong. Sadly, Father, we know that many times our truths we view as unassailable, and your truth are things, or your truth is something that we can question. We don't question ours, but we question yours. God, I pray that you will make us uncomfortable there. I pray that you will not leave us with our own truths alone. I pray that you will not be silent. I'm thankful that you have said you are faithful and just to forgive our sins, even the sin of worshiping our own truth. Father, I pray that you indeed would bring your truth upon us and let us bathe in that. God, you gave us something to remember. So God, when we are searching for something new, I pray that you would turn our hearts to those things that are old truths that never change. I pray that we'll be a people that remember more than we dispute and more than we question. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God our Savior, the glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.